It takes a special kind of person who can make a living in the world of show business. Then the clubs would start to go, man, this dude has been up there 30 minutes and he's ripping it. I want to hear their stories. How do they do it? How do they get started? Because I didn't want anybody to see me. <laughs> In your pimp ride? In my sweet-ass ride. My name is Rich Baker, and I get to talk to those who've made careers out of entertainment. I'm going to walk out of that dressing room. People don't know who the hell I am, and I'm going to show them who I am. These people are living the dream. I quit my job that day. Special thanks to Phil Ranta and the Comedy Podcast Network. I've been on television. I've uh, been in on radio, magazines, newspapers. I've written in books. Artwork by Tom Burns. Original music by Diana Lawrence. And I went up and I totally shit my pants. I froze. <laughs> <laughs> if you have questions about the show or suggestions for who I should interview, send me an email, livingthedreampodcast at gmail.com. Guys named Potato Salad and all these. <laughs> we have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash livingthedreampodcast. Right now, I am living the dream. This is episode number 25 with stand-up comedian Daryl Joyce. Living the dream. My name is Rich Baker. <laughs> I have Daryl Joyce with me. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, you are welcome, man. You know, living the, living the dream was actually... <laughs> I was in a situation where I was, uh, <clears throat> I, was, I was sitting next to a guy at a sporting event, and he kept yelling that out. And it was like, I don't remember... You know how like you never hear something until somebody drives you nuts with it? Yeah. And this guy just kept saying, living a dream! And I just... I finally looked over and I'm like, what the hell does it mean? Like, we both have <laughs> shitty seats. So... <laughs> We're as far from the dream as we could possibly be. But right now, I am living the dream. Uh, absolutely. Because you've been, a, you're a very funny stand-up comedian. Well, thank you've you. been, well, of course. Uh, thank you. Thank you for providing entertainment. Um, yeah, how long have you been doing it? I, I think 21 years. I'm going to say 20. Wow. But I think 21. Your yeah. career can legally drink. <laughs> Basically. And sometimes it needs to. Sometimes it well, needs to drink. Amen. Uh, has it been paying the bills for 21 years? Uh, six, 16 years, I think. 94. I, I, I punched my last time clock in, I think, 1994. I was working a temp job where I would just do, you know, a temp service, and they just send you, and one day you're plunging toilets, and then the next day you're, you know, hanging off the side of a skyscraper or something as a temp. So Absolutely. I did it all, man. I had every job, every, I mean, the only, thing, only job I think I didn't have was a waiter. I mean, oh, yeah? I was never a waiter, but I'm not a personable person, so I would suck <laughs> at being a waiter. You know, like, like if somebody sends the food back, I'd be too, I'd, I'd be too much of an asshole to explain to them, like, I didn't cook it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is not how I order it. And I go, I don't make steaks. Look at, look at the flare and the suspenders. Do I look like I made the steak? I, I gave them the note that I wrote that, like, I couldn't do it. So every restaurant that I worked at, I would be like, busboy, dishwasher, uh, something like that, but like dealing with people, public, nah, nah, you, nah you, your business would close if you had me. <laughs> <laughs> totally fair. Uh, you, so your last temp job, uh, where were you working? Like what geographic oh. area were you? Oh, Columbus, uh, Ohio. You were in Columbus, and yeah. then that's when you made the transition in Columbus from being a temp job kind of part-time comedian to a full-time comedian. Yeah, 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 and that actually happened, uh, I was doing, I was stuck in like the MC opener mode from uh -huh. about 90... From about eighty nine or ninety mm -hmm. till about then, and then I hooked up with a guy. I was uh, I was standing in the back of a comedy club. And this is what most comedians do. I was standing in the back of a comedy club in my hometown. It's a funny bone, and uh, there's always on any given night when the when the when the paid comic, the guy whose name's on the marquee, on any given night, there's four or five wannabe potential stand ups that are in the back just observing, um, you know, hoping to get a shot at something. And I was it was one of those days. I was sitting in the back, and uh, it was a hypnotist named Jay Medicine Hat. 
And he went up, and he has this thing where he does a little stand-up up front, and then he, uh, he brings people onto the stage to hypnotize them. And uh, there was a particular incident where the crowd was a little unruly, and the crowd has to be very, very quiet in order to get you know the induction part done. Yeah. And uh, so he had to stop the induction because of some some disruptions, and then he had to do it again, but he had to take those people off and bring up like 12 new people. Uh-huh. So the show just never really took off without a hitch, so... He just figured out, well, the show is over. So he walks off and goes to the manager in the club. He's like, I can't get anybody. So long story short is the manager goes, well, let's talk about it. In the meantime, let's throw a sacrificial lamb up there. So he just <laughs> looks and goes, uh, uh, you go up and do time until we figure this out. And he never would let me on stage up until that point. I would just be hanging out at open mic nights and... I'd walk in, and he'd let me in free because he got tired of looking at me. He'd just go, ah, he's always here. So then he let me go up, and I killed the room. I did, like, 20, and I smashed the room. And he was like, oh, it's fresh. I never heard of it, which was because he would never book me. Fair. Yeah, absolutely. So then Jay Madison had is standing in the back of the room, and he goes, you know what? He comes up to me, and he goes, well, I've gotten a little tired of the stand-up part of it anyway, so why don't you just go on the road with me to all my gigs and just do that 20 minutes of stand-up? And then I'll come up and hypnotize them, and the show will rock. And that's what we did for wow. like uh, two years. So I just quit my j- I quit my job that day. <laughs> he told me he was like, you know, and basically in so many words, he was like, you're either gonna do this or you're not. You know, this is your one shot. So I took it, and I went all around the country to every comedy club and venue that he was booked in, and I got to show my stuff. And then a lot of those clubs and venues started saying, well, could, would you come back without him for a different type of stand up? event and that's how I got from working nine to five to so thank you Jay Medicine Hat, which I'm still in you know, we're still good friends, we're still close. Oh that wow. Does he still perform? Or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He's even crazier now. It's the craziest hypnotist show you ever want to see. I mean it's it's vulgar. It's I mean if you if you don't want like now with the cell phone era and YouTube, if you if your friends are assholes with cell phones with cameras, you don't wanna <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair. So you go on the road, uh, basically opening for a hypnotist, and mm-hmm. then they, so then the club people say, "I want you to back as a headliner," and that's no, not as a headliner, no, 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 feature act. Oh uh, like yeah, yeah, feature act. So they would basically like uh, Jay Madison that would take breaks. Like sometimes we'd go for four straight months, like a different club every single week. We hit it in strings, like it'd be like uh, Buffalo, then Cleveland, then Cincinnati, then Louisville. So, you know, like two, three hours apart each different week, we were hitting a different club from like Wednesday to Sunday. Yeah. So he would, you know, he was married with children. So he would take like three months off or two months off and he'd go home and just be a family man. And then and he flew his family in, you know, from time to time, like his wife and kids would come for like one of the weeks. Like if we were in a city that he knew they'd enjoy, he'd fly them in. And, you know, but me, I was just stuck out there by myself. But Sure. The clubs would see that, man, this guy really, he kicks ass. Like that opener guy you bring, he kicks ass. So what Medicine Hat would do is he would say, um, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say a little, I need a little bit more time to set up the whole hypno thing. So in the meantime, go up and do 30. Just let the club see that you can do a solid 30. Then he would act like he couldn't go on yet. Like, you know, um, well, something's wrong with this piece of equipment. Let me tweak it. Daryl's fine. Let him go for another five. And then the clubs would start to go, man, this dude has been up there 30 minutes and he's ripping it. And that was his way of like helping me be seen by clubs as because I had been doing stand up, I think, six years at that point and basically held to a 10 minute opener. Yeah. But I was getting standing ovations 
in as a, in a ten minute opening spot. Jeez, I was killing. But I was getting held back to just doing ten for like four years. So you, you know what I mean? I could condense ten minutes of stand up into four and then add new material. I would take out the taglines and the segues and just bam, 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 bam. Right. And I would rip room. So then. It got to that point where they were like, well, we'll middle you if you come back. So when Jay would take his, like, two-month hiatus, I would go out as a middle on my own. And that's how that kind of branched out. And then clubs would call other clubs. And comics that I work with would say, hey, I can recommend you to this guy. And it went from there. Do you have? Do you ever wonder, like, what would have, like, how your career would have taken off or if it would have, if it hadn't been for that one kind of random night that happened? If it hadn't been for Jay Madison Hatton that night? do I? Yeah. No, I actually don't have any doubts about it at all. I okay. think I think working with him taught me so much because he was so seasoned, you know, because he was a stand-up first, and then when he became a hypnotist, he would just do stand-up, you know, in the first 15 to 20 minutes, and then he would just do the hypno after the fact. So he knew the stand-up aspect of it as well as the showmanship side of it with the, with the hypno. So, um being with him, like for me to quit my job and to have a whole calendar of bookings, and you know, and, and any stand up comic out there that's listening to this, when you first start doing stand up and you're like an open micer, like a quote unquote open micer, you might have one gig and then you have to temp, you know, for two weeks and then you get a gig and then it's three weeks before you get another one or you get a little $75 gig in the back of a bar. <laughs> That was what I was doing. So as far as being a road comic, where actually I leave my home, go out of state, check into a hotel, and my name's on a marquee, that had never really materialized. It was sporadic, but it didn't materialize. And with Medicine Hat, it was overnight. So everywhere that we went, the flyer was, you know, Jay Medicine Hat and special guest Daryl Joyce. And my picture, even though it would be smaller than Medicine Hat, which didn't bother me, sure. my picture was on a marquee somewhere. So it just... I went from just, you know, cleaning up construction sites for a temp job to in theaters and, you know, not from my own doing just because I was his opening act. But Yeah, I mean, that's such kismet. Um, so, like, when, at what point, obviously you're, not, you're still not with him, I mean, that was years ago. At what point was that kind of like, a, all right, I'm, I'm kind of done being an opener for Jay and now I'm, now I'm my own guy? About a year, year and a half, because clubs started recognizing that. Like, when I started realizing that that was how it was working out, like, he and I would go to a city and um, I would have a really, really good show. You know, we talk about it afterwards. Like, sometimes I just go up and do 15. Like, sometimes we get to a venue and the hype would be so big like the room is packed to the walls they're turning people away at the door like it's sold out you know there's no more tickets they would we were to the point where we were adding shows like we would get to a like a comedy club would have like a, a thursday night seven thirty show only and then that day they would add a nine thirty show and sell it out within an hour with all the people they turned around because it was the first one was sold out so in that second show the hype to see him would be so great that he would say, I'll say, we would agree, like, why don't you just take this one? You know what I mean? I'll just go up and do 15 or 20, and then you roll for an hour and 10. Because sometimes when you're the opener and you go up for too long in front of who they really want to see, yeah, you know what I mean? It can, it can go bad. Yeah. So uh, that learning, it taught me everything in that year and a half about sometimes you got to recognize when they don't want to see anybody but whose name's on the marquee. And then there's times when you got to know your place. And there's situations where you don't, Instead of asking a comedy club to see you as a feature or a headliner, 
just go show them that you have it. Just go get a standing ovation in 20 minutes and show them instead of saying, hey, I'm capable of headlining. Go, okay, I'm going to show you that no matter who follows me, I'm going to get a standing note. No matter whose name is on this marquee, I'm going to walk out of that dressing room. People don't know who the hell I am, and I'm going to show them who I am. And that taught me how to book clubs, how to, uh, how to carry myself as a stand-up, how not to beg. Because the minute you beg, they lose respect for you. You know, club yeah. bookers and club managers, as soon as you beg, they lose respect for you. So medicine had taught me so many aspects of it. So I think my, I don't know where my career would have ever went <laughs> had I not had the opportunity. Because it was like a year and a half of, of, of stand-up comedy college. Yeah. From here's how you book, here's how you live on the road with the, with the money that you make, and here's how you get from point A to point B as far as when you cold call a club like here's how you call a club you've never worked and submit yourself to them and see if they take it i mean the list is endless what i learned just from working with him so i don't i don't i can't see my career without opening for medicine hat i just don't see it that's great when you so you said you were working temp jobs prior to this which (laughs) leads me to believe that you were probably always focused on the idea of being a stand-up as opposed to like investing much into another career yeah, yeah. Uh, well hap- I'll, I'll give you the quick background story um i was an electrician um when i graduated high school um at, at 18 i worked at a car dealership because that's my crux that's my addiction cars so okay when i got out of high school uh all i wanted to do i wanted to be a body shop guy i wanted to just work in a body shop and take cars apart put them together paint them Oh. And that's what I wanted to do. But I was I grew up poor, and my parents couldn't afford this. There was a college that I wanted to go to, and I can't remember what state it was in, but um, we couldn't afford to send me to college, to go to this college. So Because you had to go there, then you had to have a vehicle that you would take with you that you did as a product. You had to be able to take the car completely apart, put it back together. Then, you know, they taught you sanding, dent fixing, painting, whatever. And it was like a three- or four-year college or something like that. And we didn't have the money. So what I did out of high school was I just went and applied for a job at a, four, at a bunch of car dealerships, and a Ford dealership hired me. And uh, so I used to, in my downtime, I worked in the parts department. So in my downtime, I would go through the back to the body shop department, and I'd hang out back there, and the guys would let me sand, or they'd show me how to smear putty on and bang bang out a dent and things like that. So um, around the age of 20, I worked there two years, and then when I turned 20, there was a comedy club that opened up called The Comedy Stop. Thank you, Andrew Ford. (laughs) Uh, It opened up, and it was the hottest ticket for a couple of states, I'd say between Detroit, Ohio, Pittsburgh, and Indiana, it was the hottest club. It was the only black-owned, black-run club around. I mean, you had to go to, like, D.C. or Atlanta or Chicago to get a black club, to even see a black comic. Because back then, improvs and funny bones, if you were a black comic, you were like a Franklin Ajay or or like an Arsenio Hall or an A.J. Jamal, something like that. But as far as guys that were untested, unproven, that didn't exist. So he opened up this club. It was in the bottom of a bar, and it just, I think it held like 180 people, and it was sold out there. Amateur night used to be sold out. Wow. The amateur night. So they ran this commercial on the radio, and it was Columbus's Funniest Five. So the funniest, they picked five comedians to go up and do five minutes in front of a, uh, a professional comedian. So, like, guys that lived in town or lived close by could come close the amateur night. They would do, like, 30 mm-hmm. at the end. Because, so, you know, like, the amateur night might be 8 bucks to get in. So then the first five comedians you see are truly amateurs. And then the last 30 minutes you see is a guy who's got some skills. Yeah. So Columbus is funny as five. You went in, they picked five guys, 
and the winner got, I think, 50 bucks or something like that. And I went in and I won nine weeks in a row with no real material. Wow. Just off charisma. Because What inspired you to go in the first place? My best friend, we were riding in a car. We were leaving work. And uh, my best friend, we were both electricians. And we were riding in the same car because we had our first apartment together. So we're riding in the car and we're listening to the radio. And it was like, hey, come to Columbus's Funniest Five. See, you know, Columbus's Funniest Amateurs. Get their start and stand up. Win 50 bucks. And my, so my buddy was like, man, you should do that because you always say funny stuff just off the top of your head. I bet you could win that. And I was like, all right, I'll go. So we went one, we went that night watched it I was like oh that's it so then the next week I went and I had like a list like on a napkin of like six or eight things I was going to talk about and I went up and I totally shit my pants I froze (laughs) I was scared to death the words didn't come out I started stuttering but the cadence of how I was doing it was making people laugh and it had sort of like a Gilbert Gottfried sort of nervous twitch appeal to it but it wasn't funny but but it was the it was the way I did it that I won. Wow. So then the next week I went back and I actually was able to do some of the material that I had written to do the week before and I got it out. Nice. And I just kept winning. And then the, the owner of the club basically came to me and he said, well, look, you, you know, nobody's beating you. So we're going to make you the host. We're just going to give you $50 to host and go up between these other five guys because nobody's beating you. So they kicked me out of the contest and I started hosting and it went from there. Wow. I mean, that was uh, 1990. That's amazing. So, like, okay, now you've uh, you, you've toured with Jay Medicine Hat, mm-hmm. and now you're kind of on your own doing clubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the clubs, being a feature act at that point, was still paying the bills enough to where you weren't having to have a temp job? Yeah, because I didn't have any... I had an apartment. I remember it specifically. I lived in a crappy apartment, and uh, the rent was two seventy nine. It was all electric. So with me being gone, my electric bill would be like 30 bucks nice. a month. So roughly my bills were $300 a month. And if I remember correctly, I had a I had an all-white with blue interior Chevy Caprice station wagon. Like the one where the back seat faces the other way. Like when, you, when the family goes on a trip, the kids are facing the people driving behind them. <laughs> that was my road car. I used to park it. <laughs> Like a block from the comedy club where, like, I'd try to get to the club. Like, if the club, like, if the show started at 8, I would try to get there about 7 and then just park in, like, a random parking lot, you know, and then walk across to the club because I didn't want anybody to see me. (laughs) In your pimp ride? In my sweet-ass ride that looked like a tipped-over refrigerator, you know, so... And the odd thing is, when I, when I when I would meet girls after the show, they I would meet the girl who didn't drive. It would be the girl. Oh. Oh, well, I rode with Amber, so I'm gonna have to ride with you to the hotel. And I'm like, shit, I got a station wagon. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my first roll car. So no no real bills other than gassing that thing up. But you know, dating myself, you know, gas back then probably wasn't even a dollar. Yeah. It, you know, it might have been a dollar a gallon. So a full tank would have been like twenty dollars. But yeah. At what point did you, like, what transitioned you from feature to headliner, or what was getting the next standing step? O's as a middle, and then club owners were just like, all right, let's they had no up. choice, they had no choice because I would go in with so much. Because here's the thing, I'm a, to all the guys out there who are new to the game. There's two things you got to understand. One, you got to have like a like a like a character, like a sort of a charisma, a way about you that people remember, mm. and two. You got to go in knowing that it's all about you. You got to go in thinking, like, say me and you went on the road together. Yeah. And uh, you and this podcast launches you to a status where you're known much more than I'm known. 
Yeah, that's probably going to happen. <laughs> right, right. So then you're the star. Like, just out of nowhere, people go, oh, you know, Rich Baker is the best. And I'm like, yeah, I know that guy, you know. So then if your agent and my agent get together and go, let's do a tour. And, I, and they said, well, don't you open for Rich. And I go, okay, because you're the guy. You're the Larry the Cable guy. You're the you're the Jeff Fox. Well, you're the name. Yeah. I'm still going to burn your ass. Sure, sure. When I go up there. You know what I mean? Now, the, the only way I won't do it is if it's my only source of income. Like if this is a 40 city tour where you're paying me two grand a show and I got 80 grand in the bank if I just don't be an ass about it, <laughs> then I'll take a dive and I'll just go out and do a decent 30. I'll do a good 30. All right. And let you shine. Uh-huh. But if it's a situation where it's me, like, like you know, back when I started, it would be all these black comedy jam explosions where guys, you know, guys named Potato Salad and all these... <laughs> You know what I mean? And then I'm just walking in as just Daryl Joy, so people just assume I'm not funny. So I'm the first guy or the second guy up, and the headliner is a guy that, you know, he might have been on Def Comedy Jam, but that don't really say shit because that's six minutes. Yeah. You know what I mean? But they know the name because he was on Def Comedy Jam and he was on BET. So they go, oh, well, this guy. Well, I go, okay, well, he's getting X amount of dollars, and I'm getting 400 with no airfare. All right. And then I go out and I just let shit fly. And when I got to clubs, it got to be the same way. It was just like, really, I'm just, I've been at it X amount of years and you're, you're offering me X amount of dollars and I need the money. And plus I got to drive eight hours in my station wagon, which I don't know what I was driving by at that point. But once I get there, the whole mission is to just destroy of course, yeah. To just destroy. And even if you're friends with the headliner, you just have to tell him, like, look, dude, you've been, look, there's three different types of headshots of you on the wall. You've been headlining this club for years. I'm stuck at X amount of dollars, which is basically a dollar more than my rent. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm, I got to show and prove. I didn't drive all the way here to make sure you look good. Because that's not benefiting me. You, you're not Adam Sandler. You're not going to cast me in your next movie. Right. You know, you're just a well-known road comic who headlines this club twice a year, so I got to let your ass see who really has it. So I used to... And what I did was I took the frustration of... Like, most middles will do, like, 25 minutes in a, in a comedy club. The MC will do 10 with about three to five minutes of announcements. You'll go up and do 25. He'll come up in between you and kill about five. Then the headliner does 45. So in that 25-minute slot... Even if I'm feeling like I can do 45, 50 minutes of good material, I'm going to cut out the taglines. I'm not going to banner with the audience at all. It's just going to be set up, punchline, segue, set up, punchline, segue. And I'm talking, I used to do 25, 30 bits in like 20 minutes. Wow. I just smash them in and just kill. Like a and machine gun. Just like a am. machine gun. And it wasn't that what I was saying was brilliant. I had the timing and I had the charisma to sell it. Yeah. And I just would hit it. Boom, 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 boom. Thank you, good night, enjoy whoever. Standing O. Nice. And then I would walk off, and then clubs would have to at one point, because I went from, I think I emceed for five years, toured with Medicine Hat for about a year and a half, and then I middled for maybe another four. Wow. And at that point, 10 years in, I probably still wasn't making 60 grand a year. I was like, this shit is pointless. I need to be headlining and doing like like headlining clubs, colleges, and doing bigger venues. So that's when I just put my foot down. Like, okay, whoever is the headliner better really bring his shit. <laughs> yeah. And that's how I did it. Good for you. I mean, I don't think that any feature or middle act should like 
take a dive. Like, if, if I'm well, it's not a dive. It's more of a respect for the guy that's that's you that's following you. You yeah. know, there's a respect thing. It's almost like when Ali and Holmes fought. Holmes knew that how Ali was past his prime, and you know, it was he was already showing signs of dementia. Like you've seen that documentary Absolutely. with Ali. Holmes wouldn't really hit him. Yeah. You know what I mean? He would hit him, then he would look over at the ref like, ain't nobody going to stop it? <laughs> you know, you do it because Ali was his friend. And like he said, Ali, he was Ali's sparring partner for five years. Ali kept him fed and put clothes on his back. So when it came down to $10 million and having to fight your friend, you'll fight him, but you ain't going to try to kill him. That's fair. That's totally fair. And, you know, but if I'm if I was working with a headliner that was an arrogant asshole where I'm, I'm in the hotel room next to him and I go, hey, I saw you on evening at the improv. I just, I've always wanted to meet you. My mom's a fan. And then if he doesn't give a shit that I just greeted him, that's the guy I burn. Yeah. That's the guy I just go, all right, God damn it. I'm about to show you what a standing O look like before you even go up and I would just go kill it. Could you, would you be comfortable saying maybe some of the nicer headliners that you worked with? Like some of the people that were just like really cool people? You know, most of them are. The only thing I could do, which I won't, is list the ones that are assholes. Oh, fair enough. It's easy to remember those, but guys that were just really, really nice, there's a lot of them. I mean, Medicine Hat used to, he used to give me gas money, um, like, because he got flown to the gigs, but he couldn't get the comedy clubs to buy me a ticket because sometimes a ticket costs more than what they were paying me. Yeah. Right? So I would, like, say we're in, uh, say we're doing a show in Dallas, and then two days later, we got to be in Houston. That's, what is that, roughly four hours, five hours? Five hours, So yeah. I'd drive. You know, Medicine Hat would get flown, and then I would just drive over. And then when I got there, you know, he'd pick me up at the airport, or meet me, I mean, I'm pick me up at the airport. Like, he'd meet me at the hotel lobby and be like, hey... And uh, he had a couple things he would say to me that we'd laugh about. And then he would go, how much gas did that piece of shit cost you? And I'd tell him. And then he'd give me the gas money. Wow. And then he'd go, hey, let's go get some pizza and beers. And then we'd take all my clothes to the dry cleaners and get them all dry cleaned for me. I mean, he did a lot of shit for me that I can't even... Wow, that's great. I, I, I mean, Jay Medicine Hat was just was the greatest guy that I ever toured with. I mean, I can't even tell you the stuff that he did. Like, I, I mean... If we got to a venue and the club offered me, like, the club might be giving me $400 to open for him, right? At the end of it, he would go, you smoked it this week. And he would give me another 200 Plus, he, you know, when he went to eat, if he went to get steak, I got steak. You know, when his clothes went to the dry cleaners, mine went to the dry cleaners. And he used to tour, like, uh, sometimes he would take, he had this van, nice little van that he had a little bit it wasn't really customized but it was a nice van yeah and he took all the seats out of it and he had a harley davidson in the back of it, like a fully customized harley davidson so gigs that were maybe four hours from his house he would drive so that he could take his harley yeah and then we would ramp it into the van and then ramp it out and we'd ride it around while we're and he let me ride it no motorcycle license nice you know what I mean? Like a $30,000, this was maybe 15 years ago, a $30,000 custom hog 15 years ago. Damn. I mean, like the American Chopper shit. Yeah. 15 years ago. Wow. And he let me just ride it. I mean. What a nice guy. He was an awesome guy. I'm going to call him. Matter of fact, I'm going to call him when this interview is over. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. So now you, I, mean, I know you obviously from cruise ships, uh -huh. uh, and you make a, a pretty good living Working. I make a very good living. I mean, I'm not modest about it. Shit, I'm I'm happy. Yeah, you're <laughs> you're doing really well. Uh, which I think a lot of people don't realize that there are comedians and, and other entertainers that can do really well monetarily, 
who aren't necessarily famous. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if I rattled off, I don't want to blow anybody's income secrets. You know, there's probably some people that don't want it sure. known. But, I mean, I know several millionaires that if I said their name, you wouldn't even... I have no idea who they were. No idea. And the thing is, what's ironic about it is, if I, if you know, if the couple of guys that I can name, if you stuck their name on a marquee in any major downtown city, the show wouldn't sell out. Yeah. You know what I mean? But if I say to you, Larry the Cable Guy, Ron White, it's packed. Even if Ron White don't even have new material. Yeah, if he's just doing the same shit. Because people buy into the name. The audience, when it comes to stand-up, doesn't know stand-up. Audience... Perfect example is the Charlie Sheen Torpedo of Truth Tour. Yeah. He sold out Madison Square Garden, and he'd never been on a stand-up stage ever in his life, right? People were taking a day off work, driving two hours, sleeping on the curb to get tickets. And I go, he's not a stand-up. Now, I'm not a player hater. I'm not hating on anybody getting any money. Sure. But you're not going to sit there and tell me that because a guy can sell out Radio City Music Hall or Madison Square Garden, or the or the Staples Center in L.A. That doesn't make him the best stand-up. Yeah. That means he's the he he was he's been marketed it. I just plural it twice. <laughs> he's been you know his marketing team is much better than he is as a stand-up. Now I'm not saying those guys don't deserve it. I'm just saying that if you look at it from a sports perspective, a guy could come out of the supplemental draft. Right and get picked up by the Dallas Cowboys, and he's automatic. If he comes off that bench and makes one interception, you know who he is. Sure. Right. Versus, there's a guy who probably didn't get picked up at all. Luck of the draw, who might end up being a better player. That guy who made the interception could wash out of the league in a week. You know. So people, you know, it's it's all name. So like. What I know you do the cruise ships and that keeps you really busy. Do mm-hmm. you have other? Is is it is that pretty much your exclusive thing? It's, it's cruise ships and um and comedy clubs and a, a, a college here or there, but I don't I don't do too many colleges. So cruise ships m- mainly do it for you. And how like how many weeks in a year are you doing cruise ships on average? Maybe fifteen, twenty. Oh, that's not something like that. So I mean, that's not it, even it, half the year by any means. Not really. No, it just depends on. I mean, sometimes I get offered cruise ships that I want to go to, depending on where the itinerary is and what it is, and then I might have normally not gone out that week to do anything, yeah. and, I, and I take it. You know, or like there's times I'm sitting at home and my agent will call and go, "Hey, they want to fly you to um, Greece," and I go, "Duh, <laughs> I'm going to Greece." You know, the chuckle box in Poughkeepsie or Greece. You know, so I just I fly to Greece. You know, I look at my lady and go, "Hey, look, I gotta go." Yeah. Does so having an agent? Does your agent book both the clubs and the cruise ships? A little ships? bit of both. Yeah. A little bit of both. I mean, most of the clubs I can book myself because they've known me for years. I can pick up the phone and call, you know, some some funny bones and improvs and and clubs around the country and go, hey, what you got for the first quarter, or second quarter of the year? And then you know they'll go, well, here's what we have, and then we'll try to work something out. So uh, most of the clubs I can book myself, but my agent will do a little bit of everything. Yeah. When. Uh, as far as being famous, obviously mm-hmm. you're doing well in the money department. You're doing, you're getting the work consistently. Is mm-hmm. is fame something you want? No. There you go. Well, then, then you truly are living the dream. Yeah, I mean that's the simplest answer that I can give. Fame. I don't want the fame. I just want. I want the recognition of doing what I do and doing it well. Yeah. You know, I mean, if I were. Like, one of my favorite stand-up comedians is, uh, I can list a few that are my very favorites. Uh, Patrice O'Neill, rest in peace, was by far one of the funniest stand-up comedians that I'd ever seen live, not to mention his specials 
and the stuff he did with Opie and Anthony. And he was phenomenal stand-up. And, and once again, an, an, a guy where if you just in random conversation said, if somebody goes, well, who's your favorite stand-up comic? People think I'm going to say Chris Rock, Eddie Murphy. And those guys were great for what they do. But Patrice just funny but most of the people that i know most of my friends that i sit down and have pizza and beer with they don't know who he is but financially he was doing well yeah he was doing well but um for me it would be that level like the brian regans Mm -hmm. where again i can like i can look to my girlfriend and go oh brian regan's coming to town she has no clue who he is yeah but if i say jeff foxworthy Larry the Cable Guy, she knows who that is, and she'll want to go because she knows who it is. She doesn't know anything about his body of work. Right. She just knows the name. You know, you could, like, this is the way stand-up is now. This is why fame doesn't really matter to me. Because the the way stand-up has gotten diluted to a point where it's not stand-ups in comedy clubs anymore. It's the guy who gets drunk and fights on the reality show, he does a comedy tour. Like yeah. like Charlie Sheen, for instance. He coked out, banged a couple hookers, got fired from a lucrative career. And bec- and now let's think about this. So to parlay from being a cokehead or whatever he does, having hookers and porn stars in his house, and getting fired from a $2 million a week paycheck, he decides overnight, let me just sell out Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I mean, think about the... The, think about the arrogance of it, but think about the statement that it makes about stand-up and any other art where there are musicians who've been singing, writing music, playing an instrument in a band for 20 years. They can't just wake up one day and go, I'm going to sell out Carnegie Hall. Yeah. Charlie Sheen just said, ah, I ain't got nothing else to do. <laughs> Let me sell out all across the country. Now, again, to somebody sitting out there with no concept or no real talent, that they get paid to do. They this sounds like I'm hating. Sure. But I guarantee you any agent could take Snooky from what's the name of the show? I guess I forgot the name uh, of the show. Uh, Jersey Shore. Jersey Shore. They could take any one of those and sell out comedy clubs and theaters around this country. Oh yeah. And that is what I'm saying how the the, the stand up aspect of it is diluted. People will pay eighty dollars or a hundred dollars a ticket to see a caricature of what is not really stand up. Yeah then I think that's what hurts the venue, and that's why I think the fame... I don't want to get famous before I'm respected as a stand-up. I want to be... The, like, Bill Cosby did it. He was a stand-up for decades, then became a, a you know somewhat of a movie star, and then he had the sitcom, and now he's more of an activist and whatnot. But his stand-up stands alone from what he did, yeah. from what he does now. Uh, George Carlin is another one. You only think stand-up. Yeah. You don't think celebrity. When you say George Carlin, you don't think celebrity or oh he's famous. You go that guy's brilliant. Right. That's what I would. That's what I want. I don't want to walk through a mall, and have people running and screaming because I was the guy that wore a dress in the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? In Big Mama's I, house eight. Yeah, I want to be the guy that people walk up and go, "Your last HBO special." My wife doesn't laugh at anything. She she pissed herself. That's what I want. I don't need the fame. The fame would just ruin the money because the money, when you're famous, you know, you can afford the nicest restaurants, but you can't go in there. Yeah. Paparazzi's waiting outside. People are coming over and talking to you while you're trying to eat. You know, you're trying to have a play date with your kid and it's all, you know what I mean? So the fame ruins it. So no, I could easily say, I mean, I'm not saying I don't want it, but I don't care. I get you. 
would, as far as like HBO special, mm-hmm. Comedy Central special, stuff like that, is mm-hmm. that something that you're working towards? Or No. I mean, if it comes, it comes. I mean, you, I don't think you can set a goal. Because if you set a goal for a specific thing, that it's too much room for disappointment. You know what I mean? If you wake up, like if I say to myself, I, w- I want $10 million in the bank, you know, and then five years from now, I only have $2.8 million. I sound like Mitt Romney. You, you know what I mean? I can't really complain. All I have is 2.8. I'm a failure. So I don't set goals like that. I mean, I've done the Comedy Centrals and BETs. I've done a lot of that stuff. I've flown overseas and done TV shows over there for their version of a Jay Leno. And I've done things like that. Mm-hmm. I had a little heat in places that people don't like Holland and Amsterdam. I, You know, but... No, I don't set goals like that. I mean, if an HBO special comes, I'm sure I'll do my best to make it the hottest special. Absolutely. That, you know, that they ever taped. But if it comes, it comes. If it doesn't, you know, my main thing is every goal that I set for myself, I hit it. Yeah. I hit every goal. The only goal that I don't have, the only goal that I didn't hit was I was, I told myself I'd buy a Lamborghini. But now that I'm 40, I don't see the significance of dropping $300,000 on a car because I already did the research it was going to cost me almost six grand a year in insurance jeez <laughs> so that's why I didn't and it was used if, for the people that are listening it's not like <laughs> I was going to go on the lot and just drop 380,000 on a 2012 it was it was used yeah but it's just now that I'm older and wiser and I'm working more towards my 401ks and I'm a little bit of an entrepreneur on the side and you know, with the books and a couple of businesses that I'm working on, I don't really need to go out and get the $400,000 car to validate what I've done. Yeah. So that the, the Lambo is the only thing that I, like, If going back to my list when I was 20 of all the things I wanted to accomplish. I mean, I've, I've been on television. I've uh, been in, on radio, magazines, newspapers. I've written in books. I've been around the world. I mean, I've done it all from my perspective. Yeah. So those are things you usually do when you get famous, right? When you're famous, that's when people want to interview you and you can go around the world and you can have any chick you want. I've done that with no money, (laughs) you know? So I don't need the fame to compliment what I've already done. The fame just basically is a way of anonymously bragging that you have everything. Yeah. So I don't need it. There's two questions I, I always ask in these interviews, and I think you've pretty much already answered them. Mm-hmm. The one is, if you couldn't do any entertainment for a living, what would you do? I'm assuming you'd work on cars, probably. I would work on cars, and I would. Um, and I was just talking about this yesterday with a friend of mine. I wanna. I would. It, it would be. It's a toss-up between being a motivational speaker. Mm-hmm. And opening a shelter, but I think I really will open the shelter. If money was no object, yeah, I would open the shelter, like a homeless shelter, uh, and I would deal with people that are that are kicking drug addictions and that were homeless and uh, vets, and I would just try to get some type of structure going where everybody worked off of each other. Like, I mean, it, it would be like a soup kitchen. You can come and get food and eat, and you can get shelter. But I would also try to get people to come and work there and get themselves back together so they can go out. And, you know, and they don't have to be stuck there. They can go out and be productive again and get their life back in order. I would do that. But if money were an object and I didn't have any, cars. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And uh, advice you would give to someone who wants to do what you do? That wants to do stand-up? Yeah. Be true to yourself. Say what you really want to say. Don't imitate anybody. Um, Word conservation. Uh. When you do shows, videotape them, audio record them, sit back, listen to them, 
listen to the words or the sentences that you repeat and eliminate them. Uh, if you've been doing stand-up a year, two years, three years, you probably have, let's say you have a 30-minute show. Uh, if I sat down with you, I could probably make that a 17-minute show. Wow. You know, <laughs> because there's so much, like instead of saying, there's certain things that people don't have to say. Like if you say, uh, my buddy and I went to McDonald's to get a Big Mac, and then you tell the rest of the joke and it's funny, you really don't need all that in the beginning. You can go, buddy and I had a sandwich, boom, punchline. Yeah. There's no need to, one, advertise for McDonald's. Two, you don't have to say McDonald's and Big Mac, because if you say Big Mac, nobody else sells one. Right. So there's certain things you have to sit back and listen to. So that's what makes it seem like when you watch me, like I don't have any wasted words, which I do. I just I pick and choose words I don't need at all, and I just don't say them. And then I don't fear the silence. That's the next thing. Don't try to talk consistently for 45 minutes. Let your charisma sell your next bit. Nice. You have anything you want to plug? A website? I took the website down, man. People don't go to unfamous people's websites. So. <laughs> Fair. If you want to see what the blank page at DarylJoyce.com looks like, just go ahead and type that in. And uh, if you want to check me out on Facebook, I'm on there slash Daryl Joyce. There you go. And, of course, I've written three books, uh, Misinformation, The Female Perpetuated Myths About Men, Volume 1 and 2, and a third book, Why Black Men Leaves Home, that basically delves into the whole uh, the uh, the interracial dating aspect of the black community. Yeah. Which I wish we had time to talk about your books, but uh, there's just so much uh, to do. We'll do a part two sometime in the future. I love it. Uh, so yeah, and if of course I discovered that if you just type in your name in YouTube, you you get some hits. You get some a couple, you get, but not many. You got I, f- I don't I don't post them purposely, but there's a couple. Yeah, awesome, Daryl Joyce. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, you're welcome. You're All welcome. Right. Living the dream. <laughs> Huge thank you to Phil Ranton, the Comedy Podcast Network. Original artwork by Tom Burns. Original music by Diana Lawrence. If you have any questions about the show or if you have suggestions for who I should interview, drop me an email. It's livingthedreampodcast at gmail.com. I'll be in the New York area if you know someone or if you are someone who you think would be for a great interview. Let me know. Facebook.com slash livingthedreampodcast. If you want to see pictures of the people who I've interviewed so you can put a face with the voice. If you haven't already done so, subscribe on iTunes. There's a lot of episodes. If you haven't heard the earlier ones, we have some really great interviews. Leave a comment. Rate the show. That helped me out a lot. Next week's episode has the undisputed queen of hypnosis, Nadine. Be sure to check that one out. Thanks for listening. My name is Rich Baker, and this is Living the Dream. Living the Dream.